This is an irregularly regular podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. It is the air that is breathed and the water that nourishes and provides, but ownership of land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Hello, my name's Michael, you can call me M, on my yet-to-be-officially-named podcast, and um, that's still a work in progress. Uh, I keep saying that, and I'm trying to work out whether it's going to be a running gag, or I might actually get uh, my finger out and and come up with a name, but I am going to put it to a poll. I can promise that, uh, whether or whether or not I, I democratically align to the results of that poll is a different story, but, you know, but... I'm functioning for this podcast. Hopefully that will instill great confidence in the in the fellow who I'm about to interview. This is Paz, Paz Forgioni from the Australian Council of Social Service. Service, not a plural, service. How's it going, Paz? Uh, hi, Michael. Uh, not too bad, thanks. Tell me what you do, Paz. What, what do you do with ACOS or the Australian Council of Social Service? Um, yeah, we'll stick with the abbreviation, I think, because um, that's easier. It sure is. Um, I work at ACOS as the Raise the Rate um, community organiser. So uh, my time's focused on the Raise the Rate campaign, which uh, many of your uh, uh, viewers um, would know as the um, campaign to um, achieve a raise a permanent raise because, um, of course, at the moment we have a temporary raise to job seeker payment and a youth allowance. I spend my time working very closely with people on job seeker and youth allowance, getting them involved in the campaign, like in all sorts of ways, um, like helping them to organise um, like activities in their community, um, supporting them to speak to the media, getting active on social media, um, lobbying politicians, and like a whole host of other activities. And I work with all the people out there who are not on job seeker and youth allowance, but who also recognise that Australia's unemployment payment um, was unlivable, and you know we desperately need a, a significant raise um, so that people in this country who are looking for paid work don't have to choose between food and medicine. I think about a bit more of a chat about is how COVID nineteen has impacted upon the raise the rate campaign. And the pandemic has presented some hardships obviously but you could also argue that um, the pandemic has provided some kinds of advantage to the raise the rate campaign i feel there's a bit of a bittersweet circumstance happening here would you agree paz or or no like i would agree i mean the the pandemic of course is 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 a tremendous um like health crisis um, the likes of which we haven't like experienced i mean i mean like in a century um, really, um, since the last pandemic, and it's obviously um, not only um, taken a tremendous toll in, in, in terms of lives um, lost and people who've uh, um, contracted uh, the virus and have gotten ill, but um, has done massive damage to the national and and global economy. However, for people on job seeker and youth allowance, uh, you know, people looking for paid work. And, and people studying uh, for a very brief period and probably the first time um, like in Australian history, 
we've had welfare payments that have risen um, like above um, the poverty line. And I really do mean um, for the very first time, like our welfare payments have never been generous. Um, like unemployment payments have um, long been very, very low. And, and over the years, they've fallen further and further behind um, the poverty line and behind the rest of the community. As a result of COVID, uh, we've had an experiment where 2 million people who otherwise um, would have been living in poverty uh, and been on an income that's slightly above the poverty line. And when the government introduced the coronavirus supplement at the end of April, like it basically doubled job seeker from 280 a week to 560 a week, which is obviously a, a massive increase, mm. uh, even at 560 a week. I just wanted to ask at that point, like with the, the raise the rate campaign, what was the increase asked for in the demand as per the campaign? Pre-COVID, we were calling for a minimum like emphasis on minimum 95 a week raise, recognizing that that would only be like a very first um, step um, given that job seeker was uh, well below the poverty line. I was also calling for an increase uh, to rent assistance, just like job seeker. Our rent assistance hasn't been raised um, like in a very long time. Um, the relationship between like uh, our rent assistance and, and rents is pretty weak. Uh, like even on the uh, full rate of rent assistance, it's it's barely going to cover your housing costs and and certainly not in Sydney. So, yeah, pre-COVID, it was a, a 95 a week increase on job seeker and a, and a 30% or $20 a week increase to rent assistance. We've obviously like adjusted our demands given the huge changes that have taken place over the last few months. Uh, the fact that the government um, you know, temporarily doubled job seeker so i think we've all um become much more ambitious now uh, realizing that uh, when the government wants to it, it, it can um basically like eliminate poverty uh very easily and very quickly yeah the the thing with this um this special covid19 supplement that the government has made to welfare payments it would uh, of course the government would present it as something that they're distributing based upon benevolence. My theory would be that uh, this isn't something that um, that is that's happened upon such a footing, but rather it's something that they were compelled to do. So, Paz, I'm wondering what um, what actions might have been undertaken by groups like ACOS, similar other organisations, um, general people, welfare payees, welfare recipients. In terms of any actions taken to um, to assert an increase, particularly under special circumstances that that the the pandemic has presented, well, it's true that that the government's um, decision to uh, temporarily double job seeker and youth allowances um, less them to do with benevolence and more to do with the need to um to prevent you know what would have been a you know catastrophic economic collapse. No doubt about that. I think that's um that's a reflection of years and years of, of, of like hard work in, in the community uh, by advocates, not just um, by ACOS, but I really want to emphasize the work of grassroots organizations like the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and uh, the Anti-Provi Network who um, um, are like whose campaigners, like almost all, you know, people directly affected, people on payments have been speaking out and organizing over and over again and really 
um, building community um, support for um, for racism to job seeker by um, by like illustrating how impossible it was to manage your finances and and um, look after your health on the old rate. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, things could have turned out very very differently in March. We could have had the the supplement um, just for people who recently lost um, their jobs. Um, that was that was one of our concerns, Michael. That that actually many of of the people who had um, been like unemployed, you know, pre-COVID, and um, were going to miss out on the extra support. Um, and the fact that they were like included, I think, is partly like a reflection of. Uh, you know, all of the lobbying, all of the media work, all of the work, um, getting trade unions and um, local councils and health groups and regional groups um, behind the campaign. So I I think without, um, you know, those um, years and years of, of um, pressure, we might have got a very different outcome. We might have had a, a um, large um, supplement like we got but just for the newly unemployed and everyone who was already unemployed uh, might have missed out. A couple of things that come from that, Paz. Maybe uh, if I could ask a double-barreled question and um, you could provide an answer that, that covers both the bases here. So, I mean, my memory about this stuff that government is offering, I remember back in June, July, uh, there, was a, there was an anxiety um, that was felt uh, amongst the um, community welfare milieu me being involved in that, uh, wearing my professional hat, that we're heading towards a bit of a welfare cliff come September where uh, governments at the time didn't necessarily promise any extension of these um, pandemic-inspired supplements. A lot of people were left hanging uh, in terms of what was happening. The other wrinkle I might add there as well is that um, we, as a community worker, we need to work with clients and um, residents and other participants to actually keep them in the loop. The education out there isn't uh, as uh, great as it is between people like you and I. And I suppose that's a privilege that we both have where regular regular people uh, may not necessarily have the, the right education and um, they might think that um, this is something that, that happens, that's going to happen on an ongoing basis and not understand particularly the, the special circumstances of which these um, uh, programs have been provided. So with the, uh, that potential cliff that was going to present itself uh, in September, um, obviously uh, we've, we've granted an extension. What would be your thoughts on how, what led to the government deciding to extend things? Like if you could shed a bit more light as to where the, the political stouches i suppose happened um because again i still go back to that theory where this isn't government benevolence that has uh warranted this extension as it was and the other thing as well paz is that you you've talked about working with other organizations and, and really doing a lot of preparation in uh, ahead of when the crisis really hit and and it sounds like that was definitely to your advantage that there was a lot of work that was done beforehand yeah, I guess that's my double-barreled question. What your thoughts were are on the extension past September of these entitlements and also what cross-organisation work happened with, with your allies? I would argue, Michael, that the cliff is still there. It's a smaller cliff. It's, it's a less 
people with. Um, like our concern uh, was that on um, September 25, people on job seeker and youth allowance um, would lose the whole supplement, the whole 550 or fortnight. Instead, um, what will happen is that they will lose just over half that supplement. They'll lose um, $300 a fortnight or $20 a day. Like in my view, that's still a cliff. That's still a, a significant drop in their incomes. Um, for people on job seeker and youth allowance, that means that they will lose about 25% of their income and they'll go from being slightly above um, the poverty line um, to well below the poverty line. Things um, certainly um, could have been worse. Uh, like I think once again, a wiser government decided to keep part of the supplement instead of completely scrapping it. Yeah, it's it's not benevolence. It's a mix of um, like economic and considerations. Um, like in terms of a building um, campaign and other really you know vast and diverse um, support that we've gotten, I think uh, one of the themes of the Razor Eight campaign is the is the unexpected voices. Um, for example, you know they told you that the uh, the Country Women's Association backs a raise um, for job seeker uh, that. That may or may not um, surprise you, but it's not the it's not the kind of voice you um, typically um, like expect to be advocating on like an issue like well, this. It, it's actually not too surprising for me because I do yeah. remember, um, and I, I have a, a vivid memory of this. Like I think it was about fifteen years ago, Country Women's Association were on this talk show, um, and I don't know how much of this was premeditated or it was just they were kind of just put on the spot, and then they said something that they would have regretted later saying that um, they were advocating for the legalisation of marijuana. Yeah, no surprise from the CWA. They're a very fine uh, compliment within the, the coalition. <laughs> well, they certainly well, they certainly shouldn't be pigeonholed, that's for sure. I think the reason why the Country Women's Association backs the raise um, to Job Seeker is um, their membership, you know, like includes uh, a very a large number of older women. And we know that the... Uh, fastest growing group of homeless people in Australia is women over the age of 55. Mm. There's, a, there's a huge issue like around uh, women um, whose working lives have been like interrupted because they've been the ones who've had to you know um, leave the workforce um, to to raise some kids. Mm. And as they get closer and closer to retirement age, their their super is very very limited. Um, um, like anyone who's unemployed over the age of 50, it's uh, very, very hard to break back into aid work. The Australian Medical Association as well, they very recently um, came out in support of raising a job seeker. I think like anyone who's thought about these issues for more than a few seconds, I can see the really deep relationship between poverty and um, poor health. 50 local councils across the country have backed the campaign because they've been um, um, they've been approached by local residents, you know, by people in their community who are unemployed and living in poverty. And of course, maybe the most um, maybe the most unexpected voice actually is uh, is from the business community. Uh, so uh, people like the um, like organisations like the Council of of um, Small Business. And the Australian Retailers Association, who um, normally like agree with uh, with our views on um, on like income support, but on 
on this one particular issue, they they understand that that uh, you know if you have a huge segment of the community who are living in poverty, who um, um, can't afford to shop because they can barely afford to cover their rent, then you know that is um, that's going to impact on on the ability of of, of businesses to uh, to survive. And you can't survive if your customers um, can't afford to shop. So that's a bit of a snapshot of some of the expected uh, raise the rate um, supporters out there in the community. The thing for me that um, that I've been noticing here, and the Raise the Rate campaign does bring this to the fore, is that a lot of stories and um, a lot of connections there. There was, I would say, I think the actual campaign itself can buy into this as as well as the, the, the crisis circumstances that the pandemic has presented, that a lot of these stories um, that people have encountered in terms of poverty and also what different organisations and different people understand uh, regarding issues centering on poverty has, has often been a, a very invisible discussion and a very invisible concept. So from there, Paz, how do you reckon to what extent this campaign has, has brought that stuff a bit more to the to the light, a bit more in terms of public debate? I'm the number one um, challenge for anyone who's trying to build a build a campaign, uh, like an anti-poverty campaign or a welfare rights campaign, is the tremendous uh, shame and and stigma that people who are unemployed, um, people who rely on Centrelink payments, unlike experience, that that uh, shame and stigma doesn't come from nowhere, of course. That, that's that's um, fostered in... I'm like in people uh, by governments and by much of the media. We all know those uh, those nasty stories uh, that imply that like anyone who's on income support is, is taking the country for a ride and and living it up and doesn't really want to uh, doesn't really want to work. I think a big part of the campaign has been really um, challenging those those uh, dishonest and vicious narratives by basically like shining a light on what's actually going on and what's actually going on is that you know people who are unemployed are have been I'm um, dealing with you know I'm pretty like horrendous um, circumstances and often um, have been too afraid of backlash or reprisal um, from the community or from the media to come forward and talk about it. Um, like how hard it is you're know, living on a really really low income like how hard it is nothing left has the campaign um, emboldened people to um to to talk about such things do you think i think there's no doubt about that and and, and not only has it like emboldened people i think it's actually shifted um like how the media um reports on poverty and unemployment it, what there has been an increase of um have been those stories where of suffering, of of pretty legitimate suffering, and and the reasons why that's happening, um, and it's not, and not necessarily it's on the basis of poor choices or limited um, ability and will. Um, I think this has been through the throes of what people encounter within their life. To me, that's been important to hear, and it's sounding like this is something that that has been able to get more focus through campaigns like Raise the Rate. Uh, uh, one of the things about being is that you you end up you end up lonely because if you can't afford to um, to leave the house your social life starts to um, shrink 
I mean, obviously, it's a bit more complicated under COVID where uh, we're trying to avoid them leaving our houses. But uh, but generally, you know, if you can't be mobile, you know, if you can't see your family and friends and participate in community life, uh, your uh, I, I mean, the social circles are likely to shrink. And people people talk about the isolation that that comes from living on a very low income. But when you bring people together on job seeker or youth allowance, people people like open up about the um, the financial and personal hardship, not just like living on a low income, but you know, all the stress that comes from dealing with dealing with your job agency. It shifts the onus of blame off people and onto the systems and structures that produce uh, poverty and unemployment. People really vividly realize that uh, there's nothing wrong with and they've done um, nothing wrong, and that uh, they should stop blaming themselves for you know being unable to survive on like an income. None of us some could budget on. I'm like I've been unemployed. I was on forty bucks a day, and it was really really hard. And I you know I had lots of things going for me. I had a very supportive family. I had a, a fairly cheap housing. Mm. I was living in Adelaide, where um, things are much easier financially than, say, for people in Sydney and Melbourne, and still, it was a struggle. When people realise that it's not their fault, I think, like, a lot of that shame, like, a lot of that stigma starts them to lift. Um, you stop blaming them yourself. You stop feeling, like, inadequate. Instead of blaming them yourself, you start uh, blaming the government. I think that's kind of the first um, step, is recognising what the problem is, the problem is not you. It's not like anything um, you've done wrong. Um, the problem is the people who have long known that job seeker is like inadequate and, and who like until very recently have done nothing. They're the problem. And, mm. and once you recognize that, then you can take steps to, you know, to try to get like involved in a, in a movement or campaign. I guess from here, Paz, like in terms of continuing the structural debates and critiques that um, that campaigns like Raise the Rate promotes and encourages and empowers activists and participants to do so, I'm also wondering whether it's also compelling other likely allies to come into line as well. And for this, I refer to the union movement because Raise the Rate is a social movement and there seems to be an historic divorce between what people do activist-wise as part of a social social movement versus how people identify as members within different union affiliates and never the twain seems to meet. So I'm wondering what your thoughts might be in terms of where the possibilities for convergence upon both uh, both sections or both types of activisms can, can arise here, Paz, particularly through campaigns like Raise the Rate. Every attack on on the incomes and the rights of unemployed people, um, like, is an attack on on people in paid work. Let's be let's be really really clear that the and uh, the safety net, um, weak and tattered um, though it is, like exists because of the the campaigning of of union, uh, much be a twentieth century. The fact that we have like an unemployment benefit at all, as low as it is, is because of the work of the union movement, you know, like in the first few decades of the last century. And um, when unemployment payments are kept very, very low, we know that that puts um, downward pressure on wages. Because of course, you have a pool of people who are 
um, so desperate um, to find paid work because you know they can't survive on on like unemployment payments that they'll take any job you know even if that job is really unpleasant and really unsafe and really poorly paid and insecure when we have really really low like unemployment payments it means um, that unemployed people are under tremendous um, pressure to um, to take any job that comes along even if the job's not um, not appropriate for them even if the job is, you know, not actually, you know, even going to lift them out of poverty. Um, like, of course, um, when you're unemployed, um, you're required by Centrelink to accept any reasonable job offer. But people are so desperate that they'll, that they'll like, accept um, jobs that are not reasonable, that they'll, like, accept um, jobs that I, I might barely be above the minimum wage or maybe not above the minimum wage at all. And i got to say, the- as a previous Sensolink recipient myself, and particularly during the times when you're on Sensolink for a protracted basis, you do get broken into that fact where you get to a point where it's like you just want to get whatever you want to get so you can get away from the, the Sensolink regime. I, I don't think that's a, a coincidence that it's built that way. No, it's most certainly not a coincidence. I guess the the flip side of this is a very low payments and all of the called mutual obligation, the the hoops that unemployed people have to keep jumping through to keep receiving um, payments. And those hoops will will start to be reactivated as we slowly move out of COVID. All those factors make unemployed people more desperate. Uh, but on the other hand, people in paid work are obviously very, very worried about like ending up unemployed because they know that normally the unemployment payment is very, very low. And so like if you know that, okay, like if I lose my job, I'm going to be living in poverty. It's going to be like impossible for me to um, keep up with my uh, mortgage or rent payments. If you know that's what's waiting for you, if you lose them your job, then obviously as a worker, you're going to be less likely to take any risks like standing up for yourself or um, rocking the boat. So uh, I'm like, as long as um, we have really, really low unemployment payments, not only like is that is that bad for unemployed people, um, but it's actually bad um, like for all workers because it means that um, they don't really have a safety net and that makes them harder for them to bargain and negotiate uh, because, because they know that it's either – uh, their job or living on an income that's way below the poverty line. This this idea of, of safety net, Paz, and what happens when, when workers can no longer participate within the wage system, is this something that, that unions can, can have a bit more of a voice on or is this something that, that a campaign like Raise the Rate has covered? What do you think there? That's a big question. Trade unions are still, um, their membership has shrunk. They're still the largest mass organizations in civil society. So I think it's essential, um, whatever happens, that, that they're part of um, um, campaigns around justice for the unemployed and for other people who are relying on income support. Um, let's not forget about pensioners, of course, who have largely missed out on, on support under COVID, um, who got two uh, one-off $750 payments but didn't get access to the 550 or fortnight coronavirus um, supplement. So yes, unions have to be involved because their numbers are, are substantial. Um, they're mass organisations. I don't think we can build movements um, without their their participation. See, to me, it's a no-brainer that 
because union membership is has been the lowest and continues to be low, and I would say that that's probably been a syndrome that's been put in place since since late seventies, early eighties, with the rise of neoliberalism and also particular government legislations that have really impacted upon union building and um, and industrial rights all within that time period. Uh, to me, it would seem like a no-brainer to actually um, I- engage with the social movement a bit more in terms of the more issues that you have and the more issues are that, that actually resonate and where you can see the commonalities. So surely that would make an incentive toward reaching out to social movements, if, at least for the base reason to to increase membership within the union to me that that would sound that would sound like a no-brainer how do people get involved with raise the rate from here and how do they become more aware of of what's going on Uh, particularly this is very uncertain times in terms of of what the welfare state is going to provide at least over the next year or so we have a huge fight ahead of us over the next few weeks and months and while it's encouraging to know that you know, public opinions um, shifted and a majority of Australians, you know, want a permanent raise um, job seeker. And we've got lots of, of support from all sorts of um, diverse and unexpected allies across the community. We still desperately need to build and mobilise. People who want to get involved um, should check out the Raise the Rate website, raisetherate.org.au. There's lots of interesting and useful campaign materials there, different actions that you can sign up for, uh, registering to contact your MP or sharing your um, your personal story with us. On Facebook, uh, you know, I'd encourage people to follow the Raise the Rate Facebook um, page for updates. And if they're really keen to um, learn more and and um, connect with our supporters and take action with us, we have a number of um of our Facebook groups for activists, particularly our our national group, our Raise the Rate Campaigners Facebook group, which I hope you're in, Michael. And if not, I'll uh, also like invite you to join it. I'm like in a sec. And it's a great place for um, um, finding out what's what's um, coming up and like how you, you can. You already uh, got me, Paz. You already got meetings. me. You don't know, oh, don't have to sell it to me. <laughs> But yeah, it's, def- it's definitely stuff that is worth becoming aware of. Paz, if you can send us all that information, I'll, I'll definitely post on the episode propaganda. Thank you very much for, for your time there, Paz. I, from here, I suppose I'd be very interested to see where this campaign goes, how it responds to ongoing uh, welfare uncertainties and, and compelling a government to definitely do uh, more positive things um, rather than continuing to threaten people with the cliff and also where the the better opportunities or increasing opportunities are for coalition building to raise a rate amongst other other lefty and activist forces thank you very much for your time paz let's keep in touch both personally and professionally oh thanks michael it's been a pleasure um, you have a good night you too see ya see you later <laughs>